good issue for all women. Hello there. Welcome to one of this week's two Sunday Chops. Both of them choice cuts of chat with a brilliant woman covered in an Edinburgh Festival sauce. Yeah, I mean, just go with it. Make me happy. Over on the other one, Hannah talks to writer Tati Hennessy, one of the co-creators of the National Youth Theatre's new play, F Off. They chat about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, being addicted to the internet and the extremes of social media. F Off is currently at the underbelly each day at 12.50pm. And in this Chops, I spend half an hour on the phone with the fiercely brilliant Bryony Kimmings to find out about her show, I'm a Phoenix Bitch, which tackles trauma and recovering from it, but with trademark Kimmings songs, warmth and comedy, of course. We also chat about mental health in the NHS, art on the school curriculum, climate change, creativity for all, and just how hard it is to be a theatre maker. Bit of a spoiler, Bryony's not happy about it. Anyway... I'm a phoenix, bitch. It's currently at the Pleasance Courtyard at 5.30pm and I don't have the right amount of attitude that Bryony has to say that title. So I suggest I hand it all over to her. Hello, I am joined on the phone by performance artist, theatre maker, writer and all-round extraordinary bird, Bryony Kimmings. Hello. (laughs) All-round extraordinary bird is how I introduce myself to people when I make them. Good. Because it's true. <laughs> now, How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, it's bloody miserable here. You're up in Edinburgh. What's it doing up there? Blue sky. What? In Scotland? Uh, I know. Climate change, man. Everything's gone completely haywire. It sounds like you've gone on holiday by mistake. Are you sure you're at the festival? <laughs> Do you know what? This is my this is my first festival since 2015. And I didn't think I'd be emotional about it. But as I walk around, I'm like, oh, memories. It's so pretty here. It's like being on holiday. It is, it is beautiful. Yeah. So I call women birds fairly often, but you are a certain bird in particular this year. Can you tell us about your solo show? <laughs> that was a nice segue. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I'm a phoenix, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new show. Yeah, I'm a phoenix. I do feel like a phoenix. That's obviously why I called the show that, Bryony. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Tell you about it. Yes, today. please. Uh, it's a, you know, I make autobiographical work always about my life and try and make that relevant to other people and, you know, talk about things that people don't normally talk about. That's sort of my job, I feel like, as an artist. And this is the, uh, the, uh, sort of a mid-scale show, so quite a large-scale show for me. Finally, I had a budget to make something beautiful and big, and it's about the worst year of my life. You know, I had a baby, and I had a breakdown, and I had a very ill child after about sort of four months of ha- having a normal baby experience it kind of shattered into this horrific neurological condition that my son ended up having and the fallout of that which all sounds very depressing for a show but it's also about how one does put oneself back together I guess and then try and even in the worst times make something positive from all of that or learn something from those horrible moments so yes about the first really truly first traumatic thing that has ever happened to me which you know so lucky to have nearly be 40 and to say that yeah it's about how we deal with trauma songs you might have <laughs> saved it up until you were nearly 40 but then you went big it sounds yeah, I went, like it I really went big <laughs> went, like I, I did that on purpose mickey i was like give it to me all in one go please let my relationship break up let me lose my home you're so dedicated to the art so dedicated no i was just praying for something big to happen oh god that's an awful thing <laughs> 
People don't know me, they don't get my humour. Yeah, just, I really wanted my kid to get sick, thanks. <laughs> the thing is, everything's good now. I'm in Edinburgh, I'm alive, my son's alive. You know, I'm, I'm friends enough with my ex-partner. I haven't. I don't have to borrow money off people. I'm, I'm all right, so I guess that's the point, isn't it? That terrible things happen, and then they sort of get all right again, and then you wait for the next terrible thing to happen, because that's what life is. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, you've made it sound incredibly bleak, but I suppose... <laughs> I think it's a, for me, this show's a bit of a, a reality check, or, or the experience was a reality check, because you know, as we all know, there's not much about this in the show, but it's kind of we sit in, in within a context of only seeing good things online and seeing good things, you know, but people don't want to talk about their messy lives. And if they do, they want them to get 10,000 hits and sort of make some money from um, uh-huh. talking about mental illness, for example. So, you know, this is just like, this is trying to get us back to this idea that bad things will happen. You're really candid in I'm a Phoenix bitch about your postnatal depression and how it nearly, and in fact did at times, tip you over the edge. Hell yeah. <laughs> Was there a lot of support out there for you while you were going through this? Um, no. It isn't a very well-funded part of mental health. Mental health in itself is lacking of funding because mm-hmm. of the lovely Tories as well. So no, it's not, and I didn't twofold there's not lots of support I remember I was living in the middle of nowhere so I remember calling my health visitor and saying I think I want to kill myself and sort of her being like well there is a mental health postnatal group in six months time so we'll make sure that you're one of the people on that and you think god christ okay I'm gonna be dead by then and then even when Frank got ill there wasn't a huge amount of emotional support for that in the same way that I know that when I've worked with cancer patients there hasn't been you know there's not a lot of mental health support because there's not a lot lot of money for it it's not it's not seen as important or has priority of esteem like physical health and also I think I also didn't ask for help I think a lot of my friends were so shocked to see the show because they were like we had no idea you know you always presented as someone that was being was completely able to cope of course the situation was sad but we didn't know you were you know seeing spiders in wallpaper that weren't there and they were talking to you you know you didn't come across like that at all I think I hid it so well that actually I didn't allow myself to fall to pieces in front of people I just suffered it alone and you know having you know Mickey I made a show with my partner at the time about not not talking about mental health and then to me I think what happened and maybe other people can identify with this, is as soon as I felt like I was losing it, in particular because I've become a new mum, if I'd have shown that I was losing it, I was so terrified that they would take my son away from me that I couldn't show someone. I couldn't say. I had to just hide it. You know, and, and that's and that's crazy. They wouldn't have taken my son away. I probably would have been put in some kind of unit with him. But as soon as it happens to you, you, you're, you know, humans are actually programmed at a really kind of paleolithic or whatever it's called level to survive so if your brain's telling you kill yourself kill yourself or you know giving you all these psychosis kind of scenarios that aren't real your um, survival instinct kicks in and says do not tell anyone fix fix your brain yourself don't tell anyone you'll be you'll die sort of thing yeah because you don't want to be the sort of weakest animal in the pack no exactly so that really kicked in with me as a woman anyway who kind of i'm a very alpha person so weakness isn't isn't part of my vocabulary or wasn't part of my vocabulary now it very much is I'm really well versed in asking for help people say this kind of crap all the time but I'm a much more rounded human being now that something bad's happened I know this might sound a bit cliched but did you find strength in admitting weakness totally yeah and I think these things are cliched but they're cliches for a reason because they are true and they're only cliches because people are bored of bloody hearing them and saying them yeah, I did. Of course, I also found terror, horror, depression, 
disgust, um, guilt, all of those things are also there. But yes, strength also came from the experience. Um, and also, I guess, in a way, a lot of people who survive trauma say it definitely showed me I was stronger than I thought I was, you know, I was stronger than I thought I was. And I and I surprised and impressed myself, I guess, like if you, if you can take anything from it. I think I like to take more that I feel like I'm prepared. Like, of course, I'm not prepared. If I get a terminal cancer diagnosis, I haven't experienced that before. But I have experienced those things. And I feel like I wouldn't go into such a huge recoil of panic and mental illness. I think I'm more prepared. And I think that's all you can be, isn't it? Like, slightly have more sort of tools to deal with the horrible things that happen in life. Absolutely. We've been doing a series with Macmillan Cancer Support about Let's Talk About Death. And it's just like the the most frightening thing is the unknown. So even just talking around it doesn't mean it's not going to be fucking awful. Yeah, we're a little bit better tooled up to deal with it. Tooled up, sorry, like we're going into battle. No, but but I think it's true. Like there's a really great book with the end in mind by Dr. Catherine Mannix, who I worked with on um, the Cancer Musical. There's a whole section about what happens when you die in that in that musical. I remember having first had a conversation with her about what it's really like to die. In her experience of managing over 3,000 deaths, what is, you know, 99% of the time, what is death like? And it being, I'm, I won't describe it now because people will find it a bit triggering maybe in, you know, in the, in the show we sort of, we let people know that's what we're going to do and they can block their ears if they want to. But I remember hearing that and being like, bloody hell, I never knew how terrified of death I was. And I, you'll never understand, Catherine, how much that made that better for me. Just knowing, even though I haven't felt it, I'm not doing it, it's not happened to me. If it does, I won't remember. Like, I just remember thinking, I'm glad I know that. And that, a lot of my practice is like that, though. Why don't we talk about it? Because it's scary. What if we talk about it? Makes it less scary. The end. Round yeah. of applause. <laughs> so how does all of this trauma and working through it manifest in a biggish scale production what do you do (laughs) a stage play yeah a stage play (laughs) well i based it on what i learned in therapy so a lot of it centers around this therapy technique called rewinding where you essentially sort of sit in a therapy room and you watch traumatic events in your life back as if you're watching them on a film and the idea of that therapy technique which is pretty well used is you're one step removed from the trauma. So you can look at yourself, but you can also, you're not going back to the trauma because with post-traumatic stress disorder and that kind of thing, things that I was diagnosed with, among other things, was um, it's impossible to not be triggered if you kind of have to relive things, but then you can't really get over them unless you do relive them. So this sort of thing, it keeps you one step removed. So it's based on that most of the show. We rewind to certain events in my life and sort of unpick how would I have done that differently? What did it mean? So that's lots of it. There's a lot of filming oneself. And there's, some, there's quite a lot of singing. There's lots of lovely videos that we make. And it kind of is around the fact that I've always, or before particularly, felt like I was playing a role in my life. Like I've always felt a bit like I'm an actor. I don't know if anyone else has that feeling. Yep. Like sort of different brownies for different situations, that kind of thing. I think that's very common in women because you sort of have to play roles to a certain extent to either not be killed or to be treated in the same way as men um agreed so uh yeah there's that and then there's also one of my favorite bits of the show is that there's some but you know to bear in mind this is like singing dancing telling stories wearing wigs making jokes like it's not (laughs) it's not you know my work is always very light as until it until it's impossible for it to be light anymore it will be funny and irreverent and we'll have a nice time that's on purpose you know so we don't basically just cry the whole time (laughs) classic kimmings 
also so you kind of like me and you want to hear what happens you know you don't want to some egotistical maniac just assuming that you you know that, that people will love you as soon as you walk on the stage you have to earn that sort of love and yeah, respect come on now you're not a white man <laughs> yeah i don't get to have that <laughs> things that also happen is when i record messages for my son for his kind of future self when he might be able to understand what i'm saying i record survival tips for him things that i've learned that i'd like to pass on to him and then another part of the show is there is a straight white cisgendered middle-aged middle-class man who talks to me who's also me I play him he's um the voice inside my head my critical inner monologue happens to be a tv drama exec <laughs> and he um he kind of belittles me and bullies me throughout the show so they're the kind of three layers yeah singing dancing storytelling some crying I'm not gonna lie people are finding it quite emotional but you know what is life if it's not emotional and clearly art creating and performing it is undoubtedly a huge catharsis for you because all of your shows are super super personal yeah. and you, you you know just now you make it clear that telling these stories is is kind of how you work your way th- through them yeah so how do you feel about the lack of importance being given to the arts in say school nowadays um, how do I feel about it livid um, and that it's so it's just so based in kind of like fiction because it, it feels like you know even if I'm talking to someone I mean, I'm in a bar I've got some friends around me and I'm talking to someone that works in let's say banking there's no reason why creativity and thinking of things in a creative way isn't part of that job so we can sit and have a conversation about two very separate jobs performance artists and banking and have a synergy in how creativity kind of manifests in the brain how it keeps well-being going how it how it enhances one's life so to sort of take onus off learning something that is about empathy and creativity seems ludicrous mm-hmm. at a time at sort of sort of poor mental health uh, you know and art is sort of it's the one thing that we have that makes us not twats <laughs> <laughs> you thought i was gonna say something really profound <laughs> i like it <laughs> without art we're all twats <laughs> I just find it fucking disgusting. And, you know, it, it will change. I speak to so many teachers that are just, just livid with the whole system. So it's broken and it's breaking more and it will change. And, we, you know, it, it will probably be in about when my son bloody graduates from university if he ever goes. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book next year about creativity and I'm certainly not going to market it just to performance artists. It's going to be about how, you know, kind of in a Marie Kondo way, it's very important for well-being, creativity and art. So, yeah, I think it's one of my bugbears and it'll probably be, I think this book will be something, but potentially, I've, you know, I love to do telly stuff. I do more telly stuff. So I hope it could be a programme. I'd love to go to people's homes and be like, come on, tell me how you're an artist. And, you know, you meet the bin man who does like sculptures in his garden. <laughs> There's, everyone has creativity in their life. Yeah, and if you think, like, it's just so crackers to take it away from children because that's exactly how children first start communicating, through play. I know. Well, you know, we all have a responsibility to make a very loud noise about it. If we don't, then our rights get taken away. Our right to art is one of those things. Our right to happiness is another one. So, you know, I I don't like people that sit around and moan about it. Do fucking something about it. Recently, in recent months probably, just with all this Brexit and Boris, I've decided to... I've started to forgive myself for not being better at being an activist because sometimes the powers that be are so strong nowadays particularly that it really it will be huge human movement that you know solves things like climate change I don't deny it but like bloody hell what a world (laughs) 
it feels like such a slog and it then... really does more than I've ever felt you know mm. I thought it might get easier it just feels to be getting worse but that doesn't mean you know you stop and go well fuck it I'll just give up but I have started to put sort of bottled water into a cupboard in my house <laughs> you know and I really have started to think about what I would do if because I you just do not know and that's the terrifying thing just talking about climate change it's interesting there was a more pushback than I've ever seen before that when we had the recent bout of ridiculously too hot weather people saying why are the newspapers and why is the internet publishing pictures of people on holiday instead of like things on fire yeah to illustrate this oh well I, I you know I'm making a show about climate change over the next couple of years and I I am so I'm not so I'm not interested particularly although my whole career has been very interested in science, this time I'm not particularly interested in this sort of climate change denial or climate change science. Like, I'm over that. It's happening. I'm kind of much more interested in how, as yet, we haven't really found the right story to tell to get it sorted. Like, I feel like they're very good at telling stories that are sort of the opposite side of that, which is like, oh, it's not as bad as everyone thinks, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that is to do with the media, but also a lot of that is to do with the way in which we solve climate change or the way in which we kind of prevent climate change from getting any worse, isn't the story that we've been told since we were kids, which is one person comes, faces a problem, sorts it out, and it's sorted, and it's quick. And although it's a battle, it's it's possible. You know, all of those things that we're told, that's how life goes. You do this, and that happens, and then you change, and that's the end of that story, and then another story begins. This is hundreds of thousands of heroes, hundreds of years of work, no real direct results seen in one's lifetime. All of those things are completely incomprehensible to humanity presently. We don't tell stories like that. So it's very hard for those people that are working on the side of, shit, we need to do something about climate change, particularly politicians who have four-year cycles of needing to have results, to actually comprehend. You know, we can't comprehend it. And that's what my show is about. My new show is about how do we start, how do we change how we think about stories because it won't change otherwise first person to hear this but it's also the first show that I want to make which is carbon neutral and open source so I'm going to make a show which means twofold I don't destroy the planet and I also don't have to leave my son with learning difficulties at home or take him on tour so I'm going to make a show that is open source that other people can perform all over the world little gaps in it for their own local information and kind of jokes so people can just borrow it off me and perform it so we don't have to make it we don't have to travel around the world as artists and 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 I like the idea and been writing a lot about it recently particularly with this book in mind that art is very open source if we treat art like capitalism we can't talk about climate change so like a Bryony Kimmings franchise it is a Bryony Kimmings franchise but in for a for positive non-capitalist gain I like it if you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue, are putting on four events at The Stand, the best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two In Conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, Gemma Kearney. I know. And we do have some more people but we just can't announce them yet. So probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website, www, let's do it the old way, www.standardissuepodcast.com and you will see all our live events there. You will also see the other two events that we are putting on at The Fringe, which is two stand-up nights with all female bills. They are completely brilliant. Callie Beaton, 
and Jess Foster Q are both on at those shows. And there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great. And since Hannah recorded that advert, we've also announced that on August the 11th for our In Conversation event, we have booked the incredible Phoebe Robinson. That's right. Brilliantly funny American and one half of excellent podcast, Two Dope Queens. Come on now. That's got to get you getting the ticket. You talk really openly about art and give lots of properly straight talking advice on Twitter. Yeah. Um, there was a reasonable hoo-ha recently regarding the Young Vic and the treatment of Tori Ellen Martin and Sarah Henley, two yeah. upcoming female theatre makers. And I imagine you were livid when you heard it, but I, I doubt you were surprised. And I just wondered what it was like for new talent and for female talent and for minorities and what you've seen of that side of theatre making. Well, I was very vocal about it on Twitter because, of course, it's an absolute bollocks and um, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is to do with ego and to do with that ivory tower kind of view that once I've made it as something in a profession, I can't possibly put my hand down and pull someone else up here. I'll take this all for myself sort of attitude. And I obviously sent the girls a message straight away saying, fuck, fucking hell, and also <laughs> offered them my flat in Brighton for the summer to hide. But um, I feel like it's sad and hopefully this will be a change moment that um, people don't get the fucking respect and kudos they deserve. I don't think it's a problem that someone might say, look, this project was isn't where we want it to be. We've got another writer on board. We'd love to, you know, give you your credits, but we need to move it in a different direction. That happens. That's normal. It happens in film, happens in TV, happens in theatre. But to not credit them and to, and to sort of slightly write them out of the history of it, that is rude and bad, poor practice. So I think, hopefully, the kind of, you know, they were so amazingly brave to shout, to shout about it because, you know, they're, they're, they really are in the whole grand scheme of theatre landscape right at the beginning. So, you know, there's going to be people that won't work with them because of that. And that's fucking terrifying and horrible, but I'm so proud that they did that and I'd hope that all artists kind of take from that, that they should and can put, give themselves power, empower themselves. Um, and they're starting a new kind of... Um, company aren't they so I'm up for it women in particular they get shat on all the time (laughs) yeah no surprise there how hard is it to make theatre because obviously you've been doing this for a long time now and really successful but are you thinking about doing it Mickey (laughs) no it's all right it's easy it's not hard I've seen you say before about how like just even getting a theatre split that's decent or a room that will fit you oh, it's just oh, a struggle how, how is it in, oh yeah it's a struggle to make theatre in terms of financially and you know the returns not great and the salaries aren't brilliant and if you want to be a millionaire don't go into theatre making theatre itself is the hardest as yet the hardest thing you know I write music I've written a couple of films now I write creatively I'm you know, about to write a book all of those things seem like an absolute piece of piss to theatre theatre is so hard to make it's hard because it's not well paid. It's hard because it's like it's live. There's no hiding, mm-hmm. you know. I find it very difficult. When I sat and wrote last Christmas, and like could just cut to cut from London to America, you know, cut uh, cut to five five days later, you know, like you just get to do like she, now she's wearing this. It's like you don't have to think of how we get the lights off there. Where will the set change? Like how do we make sure that no one thinks that that's just completely impossible to have happened you know like just films like brilliant but it is really hard 
everything about it's hard but it doesn't make me not want to make it but I had to diversify my kind of practice because it didn't make you couldn't make a living I don't think doing just that you couldn't I don't know anyone that does and if there's any artist that do that can they send me a message <laughs> just not possible. someone someone actually put on twitter the other day how many shows is it possible to direct in a year right <clears throat> and yeah, an emerging a director and i'm thinking to myself okay i don't direct i direct my own stuff but i don't get a script and then you know have a plan what it's going to look like what the actors are going to do have an idea concept deliver concept move on that's what a director does right yeah so um somebody wrote you know two or three there's enough brain space for two or three. It's probably about a 12 to 15 week working period of time. And then it's like, okay, so what's the average that sort of a new emerging director gets paid for a directing a play, but three grand. So if you right. can only do three, you're making nine grand. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. You have to have another job. You can't not have another job. Do you think theatre will stay your biggest love though? No. No, I'm afraid not. I do like it. I hate the ecology and I hate the industry. I find it full of the biggest twats, you know, like, <laughs> just hate it. It's really up itself. It's really elitist. It's nearly as bad as opera. But <laughs> I love audiences and I really love looking into people's eyes and talking. And I don't think I'll ever stop doing that to some degree. But no, it's not my love. It's not the love of my life. It happens to be what I learnt, what, what I learnt in in you know and what I'm good at but no I, I much prefer writing at my desk at home picking up my son from school not standing on the stage shitting myself and hoping that no one throws a bottle at me do you know what I mean yeah um, it's a love-hate relationship it loves me I hate it <laughs> and you've talked about your book have you started writing it sort of yeah yeah started to at least flesh out the chapters um yeah I I People were really kind when I said, oh, I might write a book. Everyone was like, yes, please write a book. Yeah, totally. Um, and I'm trying to think of a way of making it, as I said before, a bit more accessible, just not to pe people that want to make autobiographical performance work for a small-scale touring because I'll sell seven books. But um, <laughs> just to sort of, like, think about what creativity is, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know what it's going to be called. I have got a publisher interested. We're having a meeting over summer. So, yeah, I reckon it'll be out by next I don't know. I want to say next summer. I don't know. Did I? Be cool Amazing. to come back to Edinburgh Fringe and do the Edinburgh Book Festival. You only have to go up for a week then. Not even that. Yeah, and I can do like some talks and, you know, I don't know. I, you know, part of my practice is teaching. Like, as I, you know, as I said, I have to diversify. So about half of my salary a year comes from these workshops that I run that I friggin' love. And, you know, actually noodling out problems in theatre it's like one of my favourite things to do my friends that I worked on A&E comedy they had they, you know, they wanted some dramaturgy done on their show they kind of hit a wall and they were like right we need someone to come in and they called me the, the show doula <laughs> that's and good I, I do I like to go into a room and people are like oh I don't know how to end this show and just be like you do it like this and they go oh cheers <laughs> you know it's like one of my favourite things is like noodling out stories and noodling out audience experiences so yeah, I think it will all tie in nicely to a book. But in the meantime, where can people find out more about you and your workshops and what you're up to, theatre, film, everything else-wise? It's probably best to follow me on Twitter, at Bryony Kimmings, because that's where I do most of my talking. I'm quite good on Instagram as well, but they're more like silly, funny things. 
yeah, Twitter, because uh, I put my workshops in there. My website, you know, but no, I don't even visit websites anymore. I just follow people on Twitter. So that, and then I'm doing Edinburgh Fringe the whole time, 5.30 at the Pleasance. Then I'm doing Manchester in um, November at home. And then I've got a full UK tour, April to June next year, but none of that's been uh, contracted. So I shouldn't probably say, oh, it's going to be here and there, but it'll be like a good cross section of North and South England. Oh, I'm going to be in Australia as well, if anyone's listening from Australia, in September. So it's touring. It's touring for a good couple of years here and there, like within reason with a kid and that. Well, it's good because it took, what, two years to put together? It'll be a return to home because I know you've you've been at home before, right? I opened the musical there, the cancer musical there. I haven't been at home before with this show. But it's in the main house, which I love. Oh, it's an good. amazing venue. It's an absolutely Lovely, isn't it? It's venue. a really yeah, fucking smart venue. I love it. You could spend a day there, just, just chilling yeah, out. Yeah, it's got such a good cafe. It's like mm. we work and it's got a cinema which I love just you know film's my film is actually my passion I don't even know why I make theatre <laughs> can't wait to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I'm literally chomping at the bit haven't dripped because I've been opening a show Mickey because I'm you know a professional god still banging on about it though aren't you <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much for banging on about it to us it's always a pleasure to talk to you it's really inspiring I love your energy it's just I'm, I'm cool. oh I love your energy too thanks man very LA of you to say that <laughs> it is isn't it I don't know what's happened to me Standard Issue for all women.